so. Again, I want to apologize for my lack of technology, but um, I'll give you these notes. And again, if there's anything you'd like to know further, I could send it to you. Um, but I've studied this now for a couple of weeks, and, and I'm excited to preach a sermon to you called Biblical Church Leadership. And while it is our norm, as you guys know, to preach through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, um, every once in a while we do a one-off sermon, and this is one of those sermons. And so it's entitled Biblical Church Leadership, and, and I'm going to break it down, and don't fall asleep when I say this, I'm going to break it down into ten parts, but some of those parts are very short, very quick, all right? So this is part one, the introduction. Part one is the introduction. I know our church's heart is to be faithful to the scripture in all things. I believe that. Now, are we perfect at that? No, none of us are. No church is perfect at it. But it is our goal to read the scripture and try to apply it to our lives, to our families, and to our church. And so one way we need to consider that and to consider how to do that is through church leadership. And I hope that this sermon on this topic will be thoroughly scriptural, which I have a lot of verses here, so I hope it is. I hope it will be clear and understandable, and I, I believe it's something that our church needs to hear at this time, which is why I'm, I'm preaching this uh, this morning. We know that God, before the foundation of the world, had his sights set on a people, and that people is his church, and God planned to save his people through his son, Jesus Christ, and the church is very important to God, right? It's the bride of Christ. Men, how important is our bride? The church is the bride of Christ. He cares about it. It matters how we work together, how we serve together, how we act together. And so I hope we'll see that seriousness as we consider biblical church leadership. That's part one. Part two is Ephesians 4, verse 11 through 16. So turn there. Ephesians 4. This is our text for today. As we move to part two of the sermon. And this was not originally the, the text I had studied through a couple of weeks ago. But during this past week, I had more time. And so I, as I was studying, came across this passage. Ephesians 4, verse 11. If you're there, say word. Paul wrote and said this, he said, And he gave some apostles, and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slate of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking truth in love, we may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, for whom the whole body, fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body, unto the edifying of itself in love. This passage is about the Lord and how he sets 
gives gifts, spiritual gifts to people and puts people in place of spiritual leadership and why he, he does it. Let me give you three things about this passage. First, God calls people to leadership positions. None of us, me for example as pastor, did not set myself to become a pastor. God led me and called me to this place. I didn't just walk in here one day and say, you know what, I'm going to be your pastor, right? We went through a process of prayer and discussion and prayed for God's will to be done. God calls people. It says in verse 11, he, which is Christ, he gave, he calls. And it says specifically gave. It's God's idea. It's God's plan to set people in leadership. And God do this, did this, by the way, throughout the Bible, didn't he? I mean, in the Old Testament, right? He called people to be leaders. He called Moses to go and be a leader. He called the kings like David to be a leader. He called the prophets of the Old Testament to come out and be leaders. Jesus himself called disciples. And while they were, like us, sometimes hard-headed followers, when Christ ascended to heaven, those disciples became leaders in the early church. And still to this day, God calls people to leadership positions. In verse 11 there, it mentions, it mentions the apostles, and it mentions the prophets. And I don't like those terms being thrown around today by some leaders in some churches. I think those were meant for back then. Uh, there are no more apostles today. There are no more prophets in that, in that sense today. Ephesians 2.20 says, The church has been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And so the apostles of the Olden, of the New Testament, the prophets of the Bible times, were part of the foundation of who the church is and who the church became, being built on Christ, the chief cornerstone. But now we don't have all of those. We don't have apostles now like we had back then. The point of this is that God decides how the church is to be led. Number two, God uses leaders to equip the church. So look at verse 12. It says, God gives these different leaders for the perfecting of the saints. That word perfect, uh, they would use that in those days in the Greek to mean like when someone broke a bone and they would set it straight. Or if nets were broken, they, would go, they were going to mend nets. And so the idea is that as God has given leaders in the church, these leaders would equip or perfect or lead the right way to the church. And But look at verse 12. For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry. And so this is a very important phrase here, I believe, because there are people, there are churches, there are pastors who have this mindset that you'll get a pastor in the church and it's his job to do all the work of the, of the ministry while the church just comes as consumers. But that's thoroughly unbiblical, isn't it? It's thoroughly unbiblical because while the pastor has roles and has responsibilities, his main responsibility in verse 12 is to equip the church that the church might do the work of the ministry, right? And so in that, in that way, you don't ever want to see a pastor who does everything. You also don't want a pastor who does nothing, of course. But you want a pastor who does everything because you want the people in the church to be serving the Lord. God uses leaders to equip the church. Number three, and I see this in verses 13 through 16, God forms and he grows the church. If you read 13 through 16, you'll see multiple things that God does in growing the church together. Things like this, unity. And by the way, Ephesians 4, the first part of Ephesians 4, he talks about this again. Look at Ephesians 4, verse 3. Endeavoring to keep unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So there's this picture in Ephesians 4 of 
God sets leaders in the place. Leaders equip the saints. The saints do the work of ministry. And by doing this, there is unity. It also mentions there in 13 through 16, knowledge of Christ, maturity in the gospel, a solid foundation so that we're not swayed by false teachers and falsehood. One benefit of a biblical church is the more we get together and the more we talk about the word and the more the word is in us, the less likely we are to be tricked or fooled by false doctrines in this world. There are people all around us, probably even in our families, and certainly people we know who are tossed to and fro by all kinds of false doctrines. It just happens. It just happens. Talk to some teenagers. Some of them believe some crazy things because they just heard it on a TikTok video. And they believe some things just because they heard it on, on YouTube or something. And by the way, they're adults like that too. The more we are grounded with a solid foundation in the church, and listen to me, it's not enough to say I'm just going to be a lone ranger Christian, read the Bible, stay at home, watch it on TV some. We need the church. That's what it says here. How can we be equipped? How can we be perfected, grow to be mature in Christ? It's got to be in the context of the church. It's one reason we struggled. I think a lot of people struggled during COVID. I mean, we were just, we missed, even if you didn't think you missed it, I'm telling you, you missed that fellowship with other believers. We need that. God has put it in us to need that. I'm thankful, and I believe we have a church that is trying to do Ephesians 4. Uh, I hope and pray we have leaders who are trying to equip the saints. We have saints who are doing the work of the ministry. As a matter of fact, we have a couple members who, who couldn't make it today, and five jobs went undone, or we had to get subs because they do jobs. They, they do things around here. Many of you, some of you do things around here that helps this church go week after week, and that's you doing the work of the ministry. Uh, we're being built up as the body of Christ. We're seeking knowledge. We're not swayed by false doctrine. We're not interested in deceit or schemes. I pray our church would continue toward the direction of Ephesians 4, 11 through, or 1 through 16. Let me give you part 3. Part 3, as we consider the spiritual gifts in verse 11, part 3 is just to notice the God-given organization of the church. And I've already said it earlier, but who is the head of the church? Christ, right? Christ. The Bible says that specifically in Colossians 1.18, it says Jesus is the head of his body, the church. It says that, by the way, in other texts as well. And so he is the head, and that makes sense, right? He is our Lord. He's our Savior. He deserves the preeminence in all things. And so he is the head. Under that, God has given us uh, leaders, and the Bible calls them pastors, elders, shepherds, overseers. And all those words are interchangeable. They all mean the same thing. Now, the words that we're most familiar with uh, in our day is pastors, right? Pastor. Um, for most of church history, uh, the word elder was used a little more often from what I've read and what I can find. And that word's actually making a comeback. I, you don't call me that, but I'm actually an elder, uh, biblically, an elder, an overseer, a pastor. And um, all those terms are, fi are fine with me. Just don't call me an apostle, please, or a prophet. But all those terms are fine with me. And so God sets it's Christ at the head leaders in the church, and then there's the congregation. But here's what I love about the way we do polity or church government is that the, the church, the congregation, has authority. All right? I'm not the boss. I'm not the CEO as pastor. We have authority. As a matter of fact, I'm only here because this church decided to call me as pastor, right? You voted and you prayed and you discussed and, and you called me as your pastor. And that's how uh, I see, as I summarize the New Testament, the church would 
set these leaders in, in position. I love this idea of Christ, pastors, congregation, and how God has given us this leadership pattern. But as I've told you many stories in the past, I've served in churches with all various types of leadership patterns. <laughs> the, my least favorite leadership pattern is Christ. Uh, and then under that, a whole bunch of deacon body <laughs> and then the pastor. That's the, that's the ones I've served in that can sometimes be difficult when there's a whole group of men who are not the pastors who are, quote-unquote, leading the church. And I've had, you know my stories, some very difficult times with that. And by the way, there are very godly men who are deacons all around this world, um, and that's a great servant role. But again, you guys know some of my past. But when it's done correctly, Christ at the head, we, we all understand God's the boss, God's in charge, He's the head. Pastors who are following Christ, and then a congregation who is following Christ and following their pastor's lead, that is the organization that God has given us. And I feel like we're trying our best to follow that. Number four, part four. Part four is, again, the biblical directive for church leadership. Part four is the biblical directive for elders. So in the New Testament, although Ephesians 4 mentions prophets, elders, evangelists, pastors, teachers, what I see as I study the New Testament is two main leadership positions in the New Testament church. The first one is pastors, elders. All right? That's, and that's interchangeable. It's the same person. It's the leader. And the second one are the deacons. Deacons who are meant to be servants in the church. The main difference in pastors and elders, pastors and elders are responsible to lead and teach, where deacons are responsible to handle issues that might deter the pastors from doing their job. And so deacons usually are men of, of servant hearts who lead in other ways, typically behind the scenes. In our church, we have currently one pastor, elder, myself. Um, it is my goal, it's my prayer, and I'm not just surprising you with this, by the way. It has always been my goal and my prayer that we would one day have multiple elders. Why? Part five, here we go. Part five, the New Testament teaches a plurality of elders. Listen to the scripture. Acts 14, 23 says, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. In Acts 20, verse 17, from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. Titus 1, 5, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every church. James 5, 14, a little different, but he talks about elders here. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him. There's a pattern in the New Testament for churches to have a plurality of elders. And without going too deep into it, what's the benefit of that? Can you think? What's the benefit of a plurality of elders? There are some practical benefits, right? If the elder is sick, if the elder is out of town, there's still someone there to lead. There's also just a spiritual benefit of a man of God having another man of God or other men of God to, to feed off of and to learn from and to grow from. 
Part five, the plurality of elders. Part six, notice the elders and the necessity of biblical qualifications. The necessity of biblical qualifications. If elders are going to do Ephesians 4, 11, and 12, if they're going to equip the saints, they must, needs to, they must need to be qualified. Why are qualifications necessary? Why did God put in His Word at least two different passages to say pastors must meet these qualifications? I think at least two reasons why. One, I think God knew there would be some people unfit who tried to become pastors. And God said, you at least have to follow this, these qualifications, right? So God gives them to us. I'm going to read them to you in a minute. But I, and I say this very carefully, but, and I, I promise I'm, I'm being very careful when I say this, because I could be disqualified next week, right? If I stop living by these biblical doctrines, my qualification as pastor could change. If I fall into sin of some kind or if I, act a certain way for a period of time, I could be disqualified as a pastor. And I've known men who were good pastors who at some point failed to meet these qualifications and can no longer be a pastor. Some were good. Some were good men. I've also known men who I think desired to be a pastor for the wrong reasons, and eventually these qualifications revealed that. And so these are very important qualifications that the Bible gives. A second reason I think these qualifications are given is just to help improve a pastor's spiritual character. Because I promise you, when I read these qualifications, I kind of tremble a little bit because I see like I'm on the edge of failure here. Or I don't know if I always do this like I should. And so these, these challenge current elders to meet and grow in these qualifications. So that leads me to part seven. I told you it's going fast. Part seven, qualifications of elders. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Turn to the right in your Bible there. If you're in Ephesians, go over a few books to 1 Timothy 3. You may have a heading at chapter 3 that says qualifications for bishops or pastors or elders. I want to read this to us. I think it's important. 1 Timothy 3, 1. This is a true saying. If any man desires the office of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetousness, not covetous, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity, for if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Now, turn over to the right some more to the book of Titus. Titus chapter 1. Probably a few pages to your right. Titus 1 and find verse 5. Titus 1, verse 5. For this cause left I thee in Crete, 
that thou shouldest sit in order the things that are wanting, and ordain elders in every city as I had appointed thee. If any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of riot or unruly, for a bishop must be blameless as the steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre, but a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able to, to by sound doctrine, both to exhort and to convince the, name, the naysayers. These two passages give us, I think, plenty of qualifications for what an elder or a pastor should be like in his life. Let me break some of these down. And you can look at those passages or kind of listen to me break them down. But first, and it didn't say this explicitly, but I think it kind of does. The first thing is this, a pastor or an elder must be a man. Now, that may not be controversial in this room, but if you keep up with the church, if you keep up with the, the Baptist uh, life in the past year or two, uh, it is a really big deal. It's a really big deal in the Southern Baptist Convention right now about females being pastors and why and while females are certainly important, and I believe both genders are equal, by the way, if both genders are equal, God just gives us different roles. Um, and I don't think any church could survive without the ladies in it. <laughs> they do so much work in it. When we see this passage and these passages, the elders are always men. And they're called to be the husband of one wife. And so by, by process of elimination, the husband is a, a man. But notice the things it says here. First, there is a, there's a desire to be a pastor, to be an elder, there, there is a desire that comes along with it. And to go way back 20-something years ago, I had no desire to be a pastor. Um, no desire whatsoever. But I was in college, growing in the Lord, and began to teach Sunday school and things like that. And just over this process of time, God just led me that way. Again, I didn't want to do it. It wasn't my plan. But God led me. But once I kind of reached that point of saying, okay, this is what God wants me to do, and this is how God's gifted me, I think, then I, I certainly had this desire to do it. And like I wanted to preach, and I wanted to teach, and I wanted to serve. And that, that's that desire that someone needs. Um, and so if there is a desire that is good and holy and right, then I believe God will lead that person toward uh, eldership toward past being a pastor there's there's desire there's there's a spirit given desire which is what i just mentioned i think there's also a personal desire um where you just at some point as god begins to call and work in your life you're like yes this is thing, the thing god's called me to do i'm ready to do it and then of course there's obedient desire which says here i am lord send me here i am lord use me um i think about this sometimes you know my life in the last 20 years a wife and four kids and live, moving in different places. Um, I've missed a lot in relation to my family back home. But I know I, I went where God told me to go, right? And so in, at the end of the day, that's what's important, having an obedient desire to follow Christ. In those passages we read, not only is their desire mentioned, but their moral and spiritual characteristics. Let me read them out to you. Not greedy for gain upright, above reproach, holding firm to the trustworthy word as taught, holy. And then 1 Peter 5, 3, which we didn't read, says pastors should be examples to the flock. 
any man that we would set before us as a pastor, as an elder, will not be perfect, of course, but he must be a man whose life is generally seen as holy or righteous or good in a spiritual sense. The next thing is reputation. In those passages, it said he should be above reproach, he should be respectable, and he should be well thought of by outsiders. Now, does this mean a pastor needs to be a people pleaser? Does this mean mean a pastor needs to be super popular? Not necessarily, but he needs to be well thought of, respectful to people who know him, even outside the church. I've known churches who have pastors that nobody in the community likes the pastor. (laughs) It's kind of weird, and for for good reason. We should do our best as we follow Christ to be well thought of by outsiders, as long as we're staying true to the word. The next thing is family life. Husband of one wife is mentioned twice here. It's a very debated subject. Of all these, this is the most debated. I imagine, is Paul Jr. going to be back this week? We're going to have fun Wednesday night talking about this part right here. Because he and I have already talked about it in the parking lot for hours before. So, husband of one wife, manages on household well. Children are believers, not open to insubordination. Again, let me say this. I've known good pastors. I've known pastors who are some that I look up to the most and who have had their children go astray from the Lord. So while this is a general rule, this doesn't always happen. And so as, as a pastor and a parent, this one kind of terrifies me, all right? You do your best. You try to lead your kids the right way. But there's a personal life, a family life, that needs to match up to these qualifications to, to pastor. And we'll discuss that more on Wednesday night. Personal. 1 Timothy 3.2, sober-minded, a lover of what is good, not a recent convert. Titus 1.8, disciplined, not a drunkard, self-controlled. All these personal attributes. How about relational? Titus 1.7, not quick-tempered. Have you ever had a pastor who is quick-tempered? I hope you don't right now. I hope I'm not quick-tempered. I'm not, am I, Kendall? Okay, okay, I appreciate it. <laughs> I've served with pastors as an associate pastor who are very quick-tempered. Where if I did one thing wrong or forgot one thing, they would like jump on you. Or what, you know, I, I've had pastors like that. And that's not a good relational aspect of a pastor. Not quarrelsome. Not always trying to start stuff and start fights and start di- uh, dissension. Not arrogant. Titus 1.7. Not arrogant. Not self-willed. I've told you all the story before. It's when I first moved to North Mississippi. I went to Meridian and I got in this hotel um, lobby room or area, uh, ballroom type room with this 12-person committee from a church. And they wanted me to come be their youth pastor and music minister. And one of the first things they said was, well, from what we know about you, you seem like you'd be a good fit for our church. I was like, well, that's great. And they said, our pastor is very prideful. <laughs> we want somebody to offset his pride. And I was like, that's weird. <laughs> Who would say that about their pastor? And I told Jesse on the way home, I mean, on I-59, I was like, I think God's leading us this direction, but this pastor, I don't know about this situation, you know? And guess what? I got, to, I got to the church, I took the position, and they were right. And I didn't offset his pride. We just didn't get along. <laughs> it, was, it was not good. My point is, if there's arrogance in me, if there's pride in me, that cannot stand, right? I have to see that, or usually it's my wife will tell me, you need to knock that down a notch. And we need to, none of us do, right? As Christians, we can't be prideful. We've got to be humble. 
gentle, upright, hospitable. The next thing it says here is, um, as I, as I kind of just outline these, ability to teach. An elder must be able to teach. It doesn't mean the elder has to stand up and preach every single Sunday, but an elder must be apt to teach. And again, this, this sometimes falls into the distinction between an elder and a, and a deacon, where deacons not necessarily have to be apt to teach, although some can, but elders must be able to give instruction, Titus 1.9, give instruction and rebuke those who contradict it. Now, I went, I went through these qualifications pretty quickly, and we'll discuss them more on Wednesday, but the general, the general characteristic of my life and of any man who would come to be an elder here should meet those qualifications. Part 8. Part 8 of 10. Part 8 is the responsibility of elders. So what should elders do? I imagine if we made a list in here this morning, it might be really long. But I'm going to narrow it down to two things that I think I see in the New Testament. First, elders lead. They lead by possessing oversight over what happens in the church. Acts 20, 28 says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Again, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, he speaks about shepherding the flock like a shepherd with his sheep. How about Hebrews 13, 17? This is a verse that Nick who's not here today, but Nick mentions this verse to me a lot, I think in a good way. But it says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do so with, with joy. And so pastors lead, oversight, guide. I'm doing that this morning, by the way, with this sermon, especially as I wrap this sermon up, I think it's a part of me helping to lead, I hope. I said it earlier, I want to say it again. Though the pastor's job is to lead, it's not his job to dominate. His job is to equip the people that we all might serve together. I never want to be seen as a CEO or a boss. I want to be seen as just a servant of Christ. Elders lead, and secondly, because I want it to rhyme, elders feed. In other words, they feed the congregation with the word of God. They lead in the ministry of the word and prayer. You remember Acts 6 when there were some widows not being cared for and they come to the apostles and they're like, hey, these widows are not being cared for. And the apostles had so much to do with the word and prayer that now they were having to stop the most important thing for them, the word and prayer, and kind of help handle these other people. And so what happened in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7? That's when they decided to have deacons, right? And they set aside these seven godly men to help with those widows. And it said, the disciples said, you do that and we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And in verse 7 says, the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied. I've got multiple other verses here that say elders feed, declare Teach, speak, hold forth the truth. As an elder, the main job is to lead and to feed. If an elder is not leading and feeding, then the elder needs to start leading and feeding. Part nine. Part nine is this. 
We just saw the responsibilities of the elders. Now let's look at the responsibilities of the church. Simply, the church should submit to the Lord first, right? Submit to His Word, and then submit to the God-given leadership. Now, does that mean you accept everything the pastor says? Not if it goes against the Word, right? But as far as the pastor stays close to the Word, then you should submit to that and follow to that uh, teaching. I am blessed. Um, and I've, I've said this kind of stuff before, but I've been a part of a lot of churches in my past that did not follow the pastor or always looked to nitpick the pastor or always would even undermine the pastor. Even good pastors I've seen treated that way. I'm blessed because I feel like uh, I'm treated like a real person and you guys respect the word and, and I, I appreciate you so much for that. Um, Again, I'm blessed. I talk to pre preacher friends all the time and about all the drama going on in their church. And I just had to be like, sorry. <laughs> I don't have any good stories to tell. All my stories are from previous churches. But that being said, nobody come complain today, please. I appreciate that. The responsibility of the church is to respect the Lord, serve the Lord, submit to His Word, and then follow the God-given leadership, by the way, that you, the church, has put in place. Part 10. The final part. Another thing about, another responsibility for the elder, pastor, another responsibility for the church is to recognize when there is, it, whether it's time or whether there is a person in the church who should be set as a new elder. And that's what I'm presenting to you today and that's why I'm preaching this sermon. And... Many of you know that Jason and Casey joined our church a while back, and you know when Jason first came, we were allowing them to use our facility uh, for their church that he was pastoring, and, and I've told this Wednesday night, but we sat in my office back there, and the first time we talked, he left, he left, and I thought to myself, I really wish this guy could come and be my associate pastor and work here, be an elder here, because we think a lot, a lot of things, and he's, I know he's gifted, and so... Um, not that I wanted his church to not succeed, <laughs> not that, but I just, I had this thought about, man, it'd be, it'd be great to work with this person, you know, and so as Jason and Casey have joined our church a while back and, and began to lead, I would say to you, he's been doing the work of elder, an elder anyway, in preaching when I'm not here, leading music, helping me prepare our services, he leads our prayer on Sunday mornings, and um, of course, Casey helps with our kids and, and does a great job with that, and um, so I've been praying through this, and I've mentioned it to, to many of you, but um, I believe with Jason we have a man who is a godly man of character who meets the biblical qualifications we just read, who has the God-given gifts of preaching and serving. And so I am calling us to consider, because God has given us a person and a place to do this, consider in the next couple of weeks um, affirming Jason as an elder here at our church. And so we, we mentioned it Wednesday night. We're going to talk about it again this Wednesday night. But I want you to pray for Jason and Casey and their family. Pray for the church as we figure out how to best put this into place. Again, he's already doing these roles anyway, for the most part. It's just a matter of making it official. And I think he desires that. I desire that. 
I think it would be a benefit to our church. I think it would be our church moving closer to that biblical pattern of plurality of elders. And I think that's a, a great thing. Here's how this will work. Wednesday night, we'll get together here. We'll discuss this sermon. And we'll also have some questions about eldership. Uh, next Sunday, my goal is to present uh, just an official proposal about calling Jason. And then two weeks from today, if the church wants to go through with it and he wants to go through with it, two weeks from this morning, we'll have an official affirmation vote to bring Jason on as an associate pastor slash elder of our church. And somebody, everybody always asks, so what's he going to do? Well, he's going to do, he's going to be an associate pastor, so he would help me in any way possibly that this needed. He's going to continue to do the things he's already been doing. And again, like last week, when I get up at 5 a.m. with a stomach virus, we have somebody ready to fill in. What a blessing that is. Um, remember the old days, me and Brother Dale had to start calling random people all across the state and across state lines to find somebody. It, it's such a blessing to have, have him here to do that as well. Again, more details have to be discussed, but I want you to, uh, just even today, pray about this. Um, it's my goal to be a better pastor, and I've got a long way to go. It's my goal for us to be a better church, and we have a long way to go. Um, and one way I think we can get there is by taking this step of affirming a, a second elder. We want to make disciples for God's glory, and so I want you to pray three things, church. Pray for God's will to be done in our church. Pray for me and my family, and pray for Jason and his family. Let's do that at this time. Let's bow.